0: So last week, um, I'm just going to give us a quick rundown of kind of what I hope that we covered or what I hope that we took away from last week. Um, I don't know how it felt to y'all. It felt a little bit, um, it was long and at the same time felt rushed. I felt, like, I felt like I did not do the best job in covering all the material that I'd hoped to last week. Um, well, we're not going to retread that ground, so I'm going to give you a summary of what I hope that you took away from last week. And then we're going to uh, continue answering, uh, answering this question. So the question that we began uh, attempting to answer last week uh, as we consider the intermediate state or this uh, intermediate heaven uh, is, what's life like for those who are in heaven now and last week, the hope was that we would kind of lay a foundation. I hope this is the foundation that we, that we did indeed lay last week. Uh, that the intermediate state is not merely a place of waiting, but a life far better than our earthly experience. Uh, there we will be in the presence of our Savior, free from our sinful natures, dwelling in paradise as we await God's final victory over death. Even now, heaven is a festive, joyous gathering place where Christ dwells in the midst of his people and is is accompanied by innumerable angels. So we looked at several verses last week, kind of digging into that. This week, we're going to be stepping into the book of Revelation. Uh, We'll be spending most of our time in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And I mentioned last week... Here, um, a good resource if you want to follow along in this study um, and you want to have just some extra material that you can draw from for reference, uh, Randy Alcorn's book titled Heaven is an excellent book. If you are interested, Dustin actually has a copy in his office. I'm sure he'd let you like glance over it just to see kind of the material that's in it. Um If you ask him real nicely, he might let you borrow it as long as you promise to return it. (laughs) Um, It's worth the read, and much of what we're going to be talking about today is directly drawn from a chapter in his book on heaven where he addresses this question about what life is like in the intermediate state. And he does so from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where he draws out 21 observations. We're going to go through those 21 observations. Uh, tonight, and when I say that, I know that sounds like a lot, <laughs> and I do intend on us not being 50 minutes tonight. I'm going to have an eye on my timer here, trying trying to, to keep myself to that. Um, but that being said, 21, we're going to have to make good time. So kind of the approach, I'm going to lay the groundwork here with some thoughts from Revelation 119 In regards to how we should think about how we should consider anything that we look at. In the book of Revelation, I'm going to read through this verse, verses 9 through 11, two times in chapter 6. And then I'm just going to rapid fire through things that we can observe from this, and as I mention each ob- each observation, I'm going to point you back to the verse. I'm not going to go back and reread it at that point, but I just want to keep pointing you back to these verses where we can draw this uh, information out of. This is not the only place in Revelation. Uh, further along in the in the context of chapter six, the this there's a couple of other places where you could draw similar conclusions from, but. Uh, This is a pretty good place. It's kind of packed dense with really interesting things to observe. So Revelation chapter one, verse 19 reads like this. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So uh, I want us to understand a couple of things as we um, as we start venturing into the book of Revelation here. Uh, Revelation is not simply spiritualized figures of speech. Revelation is not simply to be understood as containing only figurative or symbolic language. Just as we can look back on prophetic literature that was written about Christ's first coming And afterwards, now we can look at those verses and see clearly in the light of real historical events, how those map to realities Uh, in the same way. From John's perspective, when he wrote the book of Revelation, there would be some future date. And we're not going to get into when that is tonight. Um, There's a couple of different views on the playing out of the book of Revelation Um, That's not pertinent to the study today, but let's just suffice it to say that from John's perspective, when he saw what he saw and started pinning it down, there was some of this that this verse here says were now, and there were some of these facts that were some point in the future. Right. Um, As we consider these things, we should think about that there will be, from his vantage point, some point in the future where just like you could look at Old Testament prophecies pointing to Christ, that we will in a future... Existence, right? Some point, perhaps far into uh, the eternity, we will look back and we will see all of the things that were spoken of in Revelation and we will be able to make alignments to those realities, just like we can when we reflect on the prophecies about Christ, where we can now look back at those and say, clearly that was speaking about Him. Where if we had found ourselves in the time contemporary with the writers, of those of those passages maybe we would have had a a more difficult time drawing those things out but in history those prophecies played out in real ways and that's what i want us to understand as we consider uh the book of revelation here is that there will be a point in history where we would be be able to look at what god has done in history and align it with the words that are spoken in the book of Revelation. So that's what I mean when I say that this is not just merely like figurative or symbolic language, that there will be a day we will be able to point to real events, be it in our future or past, or some mixture of the two, be it in be it all on earth or in the intermediate heaven, or some mixture of the true of the two, this book in its entirety is true um, that being said let's push forward now into Revelation chapter 6 we're gonna look at verses 9 through 11 okay I'll give you all a moment to get there um, this is where we're gonna start speeding along we've got 21 observations that we're gonna make from this text um, so we're gonna read it two times completely through and then we're going to start thinking about this text Um, and what we can see about heaven from this text. Just a couple of things to think about as we read this. We find this particular verse in, in in the time frame of when it exists. It's before the resurrection, right The resurrection has not occurred at this point um, in the book of Revelation. So we when we're talking about the events that he sees here and what he sees here, this is something that he sees in the intermediate heaven. right. So I just want us to kind of get that, get that in our minds. Uh, before we start before we start reading this here. so this is something that he sees in the intermediate heaven. We've been talking about the intermediate heaven. it's that place. He sees into this place um, and when he sees into this place, um, whether it is real time for him or whether he's seeing it at some place in the future, this is uh, in the intermediate state prior to uh, the resurrection. So the, this is the this is the the context is the same the same um, intermediate heaven uh, that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. That's what we're talking about here in this verse. So Revelation chapter six, starting in verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been i going to read that one more time for us. I want you all to stay fixed there because I'm going to continue to point you back to it. But when I get going on the observations, I'm not going to be rereading this. So one more time through. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those had been killed. So 21 observations that we can take from this. And I'm going to try to to just say observation one, observation two as we go along so we kind of have an idea of, of how far we've made it through. I'm also going to point you to the verse along the way where you can see this and, and draw this observation. I want you to be able to draw this observation from the text. So I want you to listen to me but I want you to be looking at the book as we do. All right. So you're going to be pulling this from verse 9 here. So some of these things are going to be also things that we've covered in the past. We've spoken of at some length some of these observations. They're going to be restating things that we've already talked about. Some of these things are perhaps going to be new um, For tonight. So pay attention. Also, if we have questions afterwards, feel free to bring those to me and we will cover those in a subsequent uh, session. Um, So uh, hold on to your hats. Um, Here we go. All right. When these people died on earth, they relocated to heaven. So, verse 9, these are people who lived on earth and they, after death, Found themselves in heaven. Obviously, right? This is not new information for any of the any of us, but this is something we pull here directly from the text. They don't find themselves in some like state of existence, and then and then from that existence moving into the intermediate heaven. They don't have to be prayed from one realm into another. If they found themselves dead in Christ, then they are alive immediately. They are in heaven. That's observation number one. Observation number two, and this we'll pull from verse nine as well. Uh, These people that are in heaven are the same ones killed for Christ while on earth. So these were people who were killed. Um, Again, we've touched on this idea a couple of times in the past, this idea that like There's direct continuity between our identity on earth and our identity in heaven. The same one who was killed for Christ on earth is identified amongst these that we see here in verse 9. This continuity of life. It's the same person. You are who you are here, there, except the work of Christ fully playing out in your life. So the martyr's personal history extends directly back to their lives on earth. Those in the present heaven are not different people. They are the same people, but relocated. That's observation number two. Observation number three. And this is one of those observations that some of you are going to find this one. Well, of course. And then some of you are going to find this one. Well, you're going to try to make excuses why it couldn't be the case, right? How could I be happy? And we've covered this. Also in the past, so um, go back and listen to some of the uh, some of the previous recordings if you have issues with this uh, with this reality. Uh, the third observation is the people in heaven remember their lives on earth. Right, you can see this in verse nine. These are the these people were known and identified as the ones slain because of their te- the testimony that they had maintained. That's observation number three. So I'm going to restate that one again. Um, the people, these people in heaven, they remember. They're remembered for their lives here on earth. They're remembered for what they had done, the testimony um, that they had. So, um, what we do here matters even after this life is done. So take away from this. The fourth observation. They called out. In verse 10, they called out. What does this mean? This means they're able to express themselves audibly, perhaps. Um, A question that comes out of this, if they called out, in what sense did they call out? Could this suggest that they exist in a physical form? Like if I'm calling out and you're hearing me, what what does that require, right? These are things that we've kind of covered a bit in the past, but... Uh, don't miss the fact that they called out. So that's observation number four. Observation number five. Uh, people in the present heaven can raise their voices. Verse 10. So people in the present heaven can raise their voices. Uh, this indicates that they are rational, that they seek to communicate This also indicates that they have emotion, like they are drawn to raise their voices. Um, I don't know why this should surprise us, that people would be people even when they're in heaven, right? But um, I think sometimes we overlook that. We can oftentimes think that that a lot of our personality just gets wiped out. Um, Because we perhaps can't reconcile how we could be us and and not sin. um, Negating the fact that God's working uh, to bring these things uh, to be a reality for us. So uh, these people, passionate, raise their voices. That's observation number five. Observation number six. uh, This can be drawn from the same verse there. Uh, They called out in a loud voice. So look at that text. Look at the way that the the wording of them calling out. They call out in a loud voice. Um, This could say they called out with loud voices, but the wording leads us to this, that they cried out with a loud voice. They cried out together. Right. There's a unity that we should observe in this text. And from that, one observation that we should draw is that we are unified in our understanding and we share the same perspective and hope for the future when we find ourselves in heaven. So they cried out together. They cried out in a loud voice. Their voices could be spoken of as a loud voice because they were speaking for the same, uh, the same end, right? That's observation number six. Observation number seven, the martyrs are fully conscious, rational, and aware of each other, of God, and the situation on earth. For them to be calling out and asking, How long, O Lord, what do they know about what's going on? That it's not happened yet, right? So what does that mean about their understanding and knowledge of the events on earth? To some degree, heaven is aware of what's going on here, right? So that they could know that the ones who had killed them were still going about killing and hurting others, right? So they're conscious, they're rational, they're aware of one another as they're there together, lifting up their voices together in a unified voice. They're aware of God. We'll see that in some of the other observations. And also we'll see, again, that um, they are aware of the situation as it plays out on earth. So that's observation number seven. Observation number eight, they ask God to intervene on earth and to act on their behalf. Um, much like we lift our voices in prayer and we should do so unified together that God's kingdom might come, that his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven, Uh, they likewise ask God to intervene on earth, right? Now, this is um, different than the way that we pray, right? Because where do they find themselves? Like literally in the presence of their Savior, right? Uh, but in the same way, they're communicating with God um, on behalf of the events that are taking place on earth, asking how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Verse 10 is where you can kind of look to see that observation. So that's observation number 8. The ninth observation that we're going to see here is that those in heaven are free to ask God questions. What do they ask Him? How long? Now, a couple of things that we're going to pull from this. What can we conclude if they have to ask the question? They don't know what? The answer, right? So they're asking the question. So I think a lot of us think that we will just Automagically know everything the moment that we die. You will always be a finite being. You will never be capable of knowing everything in the way that God knows everything, right? You will never be that. You will always be finite. You will always have questions that God could answer. And they ask. They ask Him. We're f- they're free to ask God questions. Which means they have an audience with God. That means God will listen. It also means that they need to learn, right? Um, you will learn in heaven. This is an observation. This is something we can pull from this text, is that there, you will still have things that you can learn even in heaven. Your knowledge will be of true things, but you will never know every single thing. And that's a good thing. This is something that should encourage us. This is something that leads us to this reality that it will not be boring there because there will always be something new for us to experience, to know about God, about what he's doing. And we will be free to ask him. That's observation number nine. We're almost halfway through. Observation number ten. Uh, We kind of mentioned this earlier, but in verse 10 there, it's kind of obvious that the people in the present heaven know what's happening on earth. Martyrs know enough to realize those who killed them have not yet been judged. Right? So that's observation number 10. Observation number 11. Those who are in heaven have a deep concern for justice and retribution. You can see this in verse 10. You can see this in what they're asking of God. When we go to heaven, we won't adopt a passive disinterest of what happens on earth. On the contrary, our concerns will be more passionate and our thirst for justice greater. We will join with them seeking for God to do the work that he has called, that he is going to do on Earth, like our desire for God to, uh, like demonstrate total victory, um, will be will be real. We can see this as we observe the, the martyrs and the way that they desire God's justice. Uh, neither God nor we will be satisfied. In fact, until His enemies are judged, until our bodies are raised. And sin and Satan has been once and for all defeated. The earth, we look forward to its restoration and Christ's exaltation over everything. That's observation number 11. Observation number 12. um, The martyrs, not only are they known for who they were, right? They're known for the testimony that they had while they were living. But they also clearly remember their lives on earth like they remember being murdered they know that they are martyrs um, again this is one of those things that oftentimes you find yourself in that kind of tension with how are you going to be like happy in heaven if you realize these things right if you find yourself in heaven as one of these martyrs and you have been murdered for your love of Christ how can you Love Him and enjoy Him most fully if you remember that you were murdered. And if you find yourself amongst those who your murderer's justice still hasn't come to them, a lot of us would have, there would be some tension there. But that is a reality that in this intermediate state, um, we will find ourselves in a far better place, yet we'll be longing for the completion of all of these uh, realities that we hope for in the resurrection. So observation number 12, we will remember our lives. We'll be known for our lives. That was a previous observation. But we will also remember our lives. This is something we can see in this text. The 13th observation here. Um, The martyrs in heaven pray for judgment on their persecutors who are still at work hurting others. So these martyrs are calling out for justice for those who are still alive, who they are in some regards aware of their circumstances and situations. They're calling out for justice, and in doing so, they're acting in solidarity In fact, interceding for saints still alive, undergoing persecution from their persecutors. I want us to think about that for a moment, that there are those who have gone before us. We can pull it directly from this text who have not just been disconnected from our circumstances entirely, but who find themselves in a far better place and yet tied to us in such a way that they desire our good and justice for those who would do evil against us. Right? So, this intermediate state, what we can see and what we can conclude from this is that it's not just disconnected bliss. Right? It's not like to consider it just simply disconnected bliss would not would be to have a lesser view of what this existence is. It would be a lesser view of what we draw from the text here, is that they clearly are considering the the goings-on on earth, the suffering of other saints at the hands of their very own persecutors, and they're asking God to intervene in this. Uh, this suggests that uh, those that are in heaven are both seeing and praying for Saints on earth. That's observation number 13. So we are more than halfway through and we're still doing pretty good on time. Um, Another thing that we see, the 14th observation here is those who are in heaven see God's attributes in a way that makes his judgment of sin more understandable. I'm going to say that one again. And I want you to pay close attention to the text. Pay close attention to what they are asking for. So this observation that those in heaven must see God's attributes in a way that makes his judgment of sin more understandable. There would be way softer ways of wording their unified voice together. Like, Lord, how long until you save every one of them? How long until every one of them who persecuted your people and hurt your people, how long will you wait on them until they come to you? Right? Wouldn't that be a more holy view? Wouldn't we see that as a more holy understanding of what you should be seeking for? Except, except that's not what we read from the text. We read from the text of people who are in heaven, who have seen God clearly, who are asking God to judge those that stand against him and his people. That's the fourteenth observation that we can draw from this text is that we will see him more clearly and it will change and shape the way that we desire his justice and judgment upon sin. Observation number fifteen, and this is this goes into something that we've touched on um, in previous discussions that those who are in heaven are distinct individuals, that there's not this washing away of identity that you that your uniqueness doesn't get obliterated into some like, you know, like um, Eastern religion type of nonsense where you just go back into the, you know, the the. Universal being or whatever, but that, that your un, that your uniqueness and your identity is preserved. Um, we see this in verse 11, so pay attention to verse 11 there. Where it says, each of them was given a, a white robe. Um, each of them. So it's individually accounting for the martyrs that find themselves in this group and each one of them individually. Find themselves given a white robe. All right, so that's the 15th observation. The 16th observation is this Um, Martyrs wearing white robes suggests at least the possibility of actual physical forms. Why else would you need a robe? Does Casper need a robe? Right. Does our like view of what a spirit would need include a robe? Yet what we find in this description here is very much like a a description that seems or at least like alludes to some type of physical existence. Like he sees them. And he sees them given white robes. Um. Obviously, disembodied spirits we wouldn't think would need robes of any kind. Um, Now, I I will say that we're dealing with the book of Revelation. There is some symbolic language in this book. So um, I want to tread lightly on this observation. This is not a hill that I would die on, but it is an area where I would point out, and at least like it's a valid question, who wears robes? Bodies wear robes. Could we assume that the, that the robes have arms? right? Like, what does a robe look like? He identifies it as such. Um, so I, I think that it, that at least this can point us in a direction that uh, with other evidence that we've that we've discussed in the past can can give us more uh, more insight to this. So that's kind of observation number sixteen. Observation number seventeen. Um, we can see this in verse 11, that God answers their question. So um, they ask God how long and then God answers them. Right. This in- indicates some type of um, process of communication that takes place there. Um, it also like adds to the evidence that we don't know everything in heaven um, that God, we have questions there and he answers questions. And there's this back and forth where at the end of this conversation, we find these martyrs having more knowledge than they had before they asked the question. Um, so uh, they, they most certainly knew more about what God was doing after asking the question uh, than they had before asking the questions this process of learning again um, we see so that's observation number 17 and we are getting close to the finish line um, so the 18th ob- observation God promises to fulfill the martyrs request but he says that they'll have to wait a little longer what is this what, what can we draw like what like type of um, so this you see this in verse eleven also by the way, if you want to put your eyes on it. Um, so they're asking God to do something. They're being told to wait. There's this, like what we can observe is that they are anticipating this coming finale, right? They don't just find themselves in heaven disconnected from everything going on on earth, but that they anxiously await. God's completion of these things they're looking forward to. So while they are in heaven, while, yes, it is far better. While, yes, they are with their savior. They still find themselves waiting, waiting for what? Waiting for what? For God to finish the work that he is doing. So unlike the eternal heaven, like the heaven that we're going to talk about after the resurrection, um, Where there will be no more sin, no more curse or suffering on the new earth. The present heaven coexists and watches over an earth that is still under sin, under the curse, and suffering. That's the 18th observation that we can draw there. They wait for the day when it's completed. They wait along with us. You anticipate the resurrection. So does everyone that you love that finds themselves in the presence of the Lord today. Just like you, they wait for that day. When we will be reunited. When we will be resurrected. Like that is the day that heaven and earth wait in, in anticipation for. How much longer, Lord? They have the same questions that we have in that regard. The Lord told them, wait a little longer. Alright, so that's observation number 18. Observation number 19, kind of following along with this idea of waiting, it seems to indicate, um, verses 10 and 11 there, seem to indicate that time exists in heaven. Right? Um, So these these martyrs ask God a question that is dependent on time. They say, How long, O sovereign Lord? Until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And they at the same time are given a a response that is time dependent, which is wait a little longer. Right? So time itself exists. Time is not suspended um, in the intermediate heaven time exists there it's the same time that we exist in um, and this can be seen these observations can be seen by by observing that they ask questions that are dependent on time like how long and that they get responses from God that says wait a little longer so that's observation number 19. Uh, Number observation 20 um, is is this um, the people of God in heaven have a strong connection with those on earth who are called there. And this is from verse 11. They're called fellow servants and brothers. That's referring to us in, in regards to like. Uh, our our connection to those who are in heaven now we are referred to as fellow servants and brothers we share the same father from whom every family in heaven and on earth are named that 's Ephesians chapter three verse 15 uh, there is not a wall of separation within the bride of Christ we are one family who've gone to um, those who've gone to heaven some who've gone to heaven ahead of us um, After we go to heaven ourselves, we will still be one family with those who are still here on earth. Um, These verses demonstrate a connection between the bride of Christ that is in the presence of our Savior today, like with him in heaven and those who remain and their desires for us and uh, for um, God to complete his work that he has promised to complete. Um, All right, final observation, observation number 21 here. Uh, God knows down to the very last detail what is happening and what will happen on earth. We can see that in verse 11. He knows every drop of blood that is shed, every bit of suffering that is undergone by his children, he knows how many more there are left. He knows exactly how many martyrs there will be. And he is prepared to return and set up his kingdom when the final martyr dies. Alright, so that's the final observation that we pull from this text. I'm going to try to wrap this whole thing up together. Um, So in our exploration of the intermediate heaven, we find a profound and comforting truth. The intermediate state is not merely a place of waiting but a life far better than our earthly experience. We will be in the presence of our Savior, free from our sinful natures, dwelling in paradise as we await God's final victory over death. Even now, heaven is a festive, joyous gathering place where Christ dwells in the midst of His people and is accompanied by an innumerable sum of angels. As we've looked at tonight, these insights that we've pulled from Randy Alcorn's book on heaven they further illuminate our understanding revealing a heaven where personal identity continues where the voices of martyrs resonate and a longing for divine justice persists in this immediate in this intermediate state we are not idle we are in active passionate anticipation clothed in white robes of righteousness in a city with a name awaiting the final consummation of God's promises. Thus, our time in this intermediate state, while a temporary stop, is a profoundly enriching and transformative part of our eternal adventure with Christ. Something that I want to leave you with, like a thought that I want to leave you with before we close. I, I think as I consider this, I think about the stories that we tell ourselves today. Who likes a good story? Who likes to tell a good story, right? Who has a friend that likes to tell a good story? Perhaps they tell a story that's a little too long, but we are captivated by stories. This is why you go to the movies. This is why you seek entertainment in that form. Stories captivate us. Imagine the time we will enjoy in heaven before the resurrection. Imagine the memories That we will make there as we, being free from sin, enjoy Christ in anticipation of even greater moments that will await us after the resurrection. And moments that will follow those and that will follow those forever and ever. Let's pray.